This morning I'd like to continue with the theme that we've looked at uh, uh, twice already, and this will be the last in a sequence of the theme of practicing when there is fear, and really transforming fear and the roots of fear. And so it's a quite a, a powerful theme and one that in, in many ways is a direct way to enter quite deeply into our practice. Fear is very much primary in all life, in human life especially. Many of the situations that were described at the end of the sitting are certainly ones that arouse uh, fear at times. In the difficult circumstances that were mentioned, fear both for the person experiencing the challenging situation and for those around that person or even hearing of that person because I think any mention really of a challenging situation, if we are open, it will tend to resonate with us. That's the basis both for compassion and for fear. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? And so I'd like to uh, try to speak for maybe about another half hour and leave quite a good chunk of time for us to talk with each other because I think many of you have been giving some further attention to practicing with fear, particularly in the last week since, uh, since last time. And I'd like to have a chance to uh, talk about what's come up, talk about our practice with fear, our insights, our, our questions, and so forth. And so I'll really talk about uh, three themes before moving into discussion. The first is the uh, nature of fear. The second is how to practice with fear. And the third is to take us into some further dimensions of depth in relation to fear, to look into some ways that fear is present in ways that we actually often don't even see or know or realize. Uh, And to give some, again, some further what we might call depth perspectives, depth perspectives on the phenomenon of fear. And I want to begin, though, just by uh, remembering some Uh, guidelines for practicing with fear, and I'll come back to those in a little while. But it's helpful to think of the way that, the ways that we practice when there is fear, uh, before I talk about the nature of fear, because in a sense we can explore the nature of fear as one of the ways that we practice. So what I, what I've presented is a fairly simple model of, I think, uh, four main Uh, ways of practicing with fear, we might say four different interrelated resources that can help us with our practice of fear. And the first is that we it's very helpful to have a set of what we might call antidotes because we can't really practice with fear when we're not balanced. And sometimes we need these antidotes that help us come back to balance. That we can't really be mindful with fear when we're completely terrified, usually. Or when the fear is uh, taking over our body and flooding us with 
um, hormones and with chemicals and so forth. That sometimes when there's not that kind of balance, we need to come back first to balance. And I think that's very helpful to remember as a primary uh, resource or a primary way that we practice with, with fear is simply to remember to come back to balance. And so we can have a number of different ways that we come back to balance. And they may not be by looking directly at the fear. Um, you know, a lot of this is situational. At, mo- at sometimes, fear can be quite strong and we have resources. We have ways of working with it. Other times, uh, depending on a lot of conditions, circumstances, uh, hour of the day, <laughs> and so forth, we, we may actually not, it may not be the best time actually to try to be mindful because we may not have the, the, uh, the uh, requisite resources. So in those times, we can do other practices. We can do practices that help stabilize the mind. We've talked uh, quite a lot about how loving kindness, some kind of soothing of the heart, can be, is, was designed by the Buddha, the, the Buddha, particularly as a way of responding to fear. And when we cultivate the tool of loving-kindness uh, towards ourselves and towards others, it's a beautiful, wonderful tool to call upon. We can call upon uh, friends and connecting with uh, friends and community members. You know, uh, The right talk with the right person is an amazing antidote to fear that can help balance us and can give us some energy that helps us then later to investigate, to inquire, to be mindful with the fear. Because ultimately, we want to not so much get rid of the fear or exclusively just be balanced, but we want to let the fear be um, a starting point for knowledge, for inquiry, for insight. Jack Kornfield once said something that really has stuck with me. He said that fear is future learning announcing itself. (laughs) It's a great perspective to have, you know. But but often we need often we say yes, yes, and it's uh, it feels that future learning feels pretty far away. <laughs> we might say sometimes. So sometimes we do need those kind of antidotes. We need to come back to balance, be in nature. We I think we know what our ways of coming back to balance are, but sometimes we don't use them. We forget them. So it's really helpful just to almost have a formula. You know, you can have maybe maybe this will resonate with you. These four ways of working with fear, and I think they're actually there can be generalized to working with any really really challenging mind state or state of the heart. So uh, we also can you know we also might read text. We might remember uh, we might remember core teachings, and so forth. There are all sorts of ways of kind of gathering our resources, gaining support. In the Buddhist context, we might think of the remembering the three refuges, because the refuges are really where we go when we're afraid. And those refuges are the refuge in the Buddha, which we can translate either as the historical Buddha or are really taking refuge in the very notion of awakening, and taking refuge and saying, my life is about growth and learning and awakening, and this fear is a part of it. Sometimes that can bring us back to balance. Or remembering the historical Buddha and, and his life, or that of other people who have led this kind of life, who certainly have faced a lot of fear. 
and we can know their life stories sometimes and we can remember them or friends we know that are courageous. Those are great resources that help bring us back to balance or the teachings, you know, the teachings about how to work with fear can be can bring us back to balance sometimes, can give us sometimes a certain faith. A lot of what's difficult with fear is that we get caught up in um, stories which basically tell us that we are alone and doomed. <laughs> if I had to summarize <laughs> really quickly the, the basic nature of fear, it kind of comes down to that. You're alone, you're not connected, and you're a particularly flawed human being who is basically deserving of these horrible experiences you're about to have. And fear is kind of like that. And it's, uh, we'll, we'll come into that investigation because it's really helpful to see that. But we can sometimes, if that really is taking us over, we need to, we need to come back to balance first. And then secondly, we can really use our mindfulness. Because as I mentioned, ultimately, the way to work with fear is to see it clearly and to be with it in the body and the mind, the way it works with the heart, and to really study it. We have to study fear extensively. Um, in, my, in my study, I have uh, a really interesting poster, which I got from the um, uh, Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont. How many people know about the Bread and Puppet Theater? It's a pretty amazing operation kind of brings together art, spirituality, and politics all in one. And I used to live in Vermont for a period of time. I used to go to their annual, uh, I think they called it a circus, if I remember right. But uh, it was quite wonderful. And I have a poster. They do beautiful artwork. And I have a poster in my study that says, the story of one who set out to study fear. That's the spirit. It's that spirit of really using mindfulness and really looking carefully into the nature of fear. And I think for all of our difficult emotions, we have to keep studying it. We have to keep looking at it. It's not like you look at it deeply for an afternoon and that's it for fear. (laughs) I think you know that, but sometimes we think that, oh my gosh, isn't this meditation supposed to pay off a little more quickly? And so uh, the nature of mindfulness is this constant looking over and over again. It really does work with the uh, function of repetition. It works with repetition over and over and over and over again, looking and looking. And at some point, the mindfulness reaches the level of, of yielding an insight. And it's mysterious how that works, but it seems to occur in that way. And so we can really keep on, uh, keep on looking, keep on being mindful, keep on studying fear, keep on really looking into its nature. How does it work? What's it like? And that's really, when we have some degree of balance, and it's small fear, big fear, that's really a large part of our practice, is just to keep looking, just to keep investigating we can bring in the wisdom perspectives. And this is the third aspect of practice, is really to bring in the teachings, the wisdom. We might work with the teachings about how the mind and heart work. We might remember the teachings about mindfulness, which say, stay as much as possible 
with a direct experience and watch the stories that your mind tells. Watch how you move away from direct experience. Because a lot of what really captures us with fear are those storylines. And I'm not, I don't want to say that the storylines don't have any intelligence, but there often is a high level of delusion in them. <laughs> if I can say that. And, and we have to really know, and this is a great fruit of our practice, we have to know the difference between our more direct experience of fear, which we'll talk about in a moment, which can have a lot of effects on the body, the mind working a certain way, and we can know the particular narratives or stories that we tell. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention some examples in a moment. And so we can work with that teaching, we can work with the teaching about impermanence with, with, in the context of fear. We can work with the teaching about am I, uh, asking, am I grabbing hold of something? Am I in some ways consciously or unconsciously grasping onto experience in a way that is compulsive and that is maybe uh, contributing to my fear? Am I grasping onto a particular outcome? Am I grasping onto a particular story? You know, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking of this just uh, last week, I think it was. Um, it was a little while ago. I was not very long ago. Um, I was at the dentist. I'm sorry to <laughs> evoke. <laughs> I was at the dentist and I was having a crown done. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but what they do is they, you know, <laughs> you know, how many of you have had crowns done? Okay, so, so you know, so so basically, there's a pretty long needle that's stuck in. And I was just, you know, here it was, I was thinking a lot about fear. <laughs> and I was, I was, and I was just, I was trying to really study it in the moment. And I was just noticing how once I saw that needle and thought of what was going to happen, my mind started producing stories, right? Primarily about how awful the future experience was going to be, right? I mean, it was very, very interesting just to study right on the spot uh, fear happening and I could see my mind starting to form these stories, and I said, okay, Donald, time to listen to your own talks, <laughs> or whatever. And I said, okay, but I could see myself going to those stories, and I said, do I really need to do that? Can I just be with the experience? And when I did that, it was much, much easier, much, much better. And the stories um, were basically scaring me. And they, I, I could see them. I could just study the whole experience. It was just... I was just telling myself a story and it was repeating itself. It was like, something bad is going to happen. 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 Some, you know, for about a minute or so. And I, and I said, look what I'm doing. Very interesting, isn't it? Because most of the time we're caught in this, right? We don't, we don't bring the mindfulness and we don't study it. We're just kind of taken away, right? I mean, I, w- I don't remember that many times where I've really used that level of mindfulness at the dentist, you know, and it's an invitation. I don't, hope you don't have too much dental work in your future, but, but if you do or something, something comparable, you can do that. And so there's that, that quality of, of mindfulness possible. That, and it's particularly using, am I grasping after the story? And then lastly... Sometimes we can do what we can call inquiry and investigation, which is kind of the more active way of going right into the fear. Sometimes this means that we have to act in a certain way. 
that this was the story I told last time about Achen Cha, this very powerful story. And by the way, anyone who wasn't here, the, the talks are on Dharma Seed, the previous talks on fear. There's a very powerful story of Jack Kornfield's teacher, Achen Cha, who knew that he was afraid of ghosts, and he deliberately went and sat in the charnel grounds. You know, and this was, this was a culturally-based belief that he had. And he delib- deliberately went there and faced two or three days of a tremendous amount of fear and even terror. And he stayed with it, and ultimately he something <coughs> moved in that kind of willingness to be with it. And we, can, we don't have to do it in so dr- such dramatic ways, but at times, an active wish to go into the territory of fear when we're ready and actively, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean something quite that dramatic. It could just mean saying, I'm really afraid of talking about this topic with this person. I'm going to do it. Or it could be, I'm really afraid of, of something, of, um, you know, speaking up at a meeting. I can feel it. I can feel my body. You know, my body's getting really tense. And I'm going to deliberately do that. And we can take that as a, you know, we can take that as a general intention if we want to work with fear. Each of us has, has um, as it were, edges that we can work with. So these four areas, I think, can give us a sense, maybe a guideline to, to doing that work. Uh, looking for antidotes if the fear is way out of control. Coming back to balance. Working with mindfulness, that's the more regular, steady, looking, looking, looking. Bringing in our wisdom perspectives of different kinds. And then sometimes doing what we can call inquiry, or we could even call it a kind of confrontation with the fear, if we, if we want to use that word in a kind of a non-aggressive way. It's like putting oneself in the place where the fear will arise in order to do some work with it, to, in order to learn, in order not to be, as it were, a, sl- a slave of the fear. So when we look at the fear, what do we find? And it's really helpful just to be able to study it like that. So last time we asked people to kind of go into an experience of fear and to see what it was like, particularly on the level of the body and the way the mind works. And we saw that fear has all sorts of um, physical manifestations, that it really is, um, you know, obviously the heart can be pounding, we can... Um, start shutting down physically. We can feel tension in different parts of our body, the stomach, the head. You know, uh, some of us, when we're fearful, we may have uh, even habits come into motion. We may, we may move in a certain way. You know, people sometimes tap their feet or they, you know, they do self-soothing physical motions, you know, like, like with the hands or with you know, touching themselves in a certain way. We all do that, and it's very helpful to know that, to see how one manifests fear physically, both to study it and also to use, that becomes also a cue for yourself to let you know that there is fear. It's a mindfulness cue. When you study the, the, your own physical ways of being fearful. It may be that you, your shoulders hunch or there's tension or something like that. And just to know that is extremely helpful because it becomes a cue that lets you know earlier on in the process that fear or anxiety is arising. So very, very helpful. So we each have to do that kind of work. Just study it. And so if it's there uh, in the next you know, um, period of time especially, but really any time, we can really study it and make and just know that that study is actually very, very fruitful. It's really... Uh, partly to know what it's like to help us to 
uh, recognize it in the body, and then we can also recognize the qualities of fear in the in the mind. That there often can be some confusion. Sometimes our usual capacities for thought, for rational thinking, are disturbed, or paralyzed, or or distorted. Our thinking can get distorted. There's a lot of repetition, as in my example uh, at the dentist. You know, there's when there are fearful thoughts, we repeat ourselves a, a tremendous amount. Uh, we, as as I mentioned, we often get taken away by a certain narrative or story. So it's very, very helpful when we're working with fear really to look for, particularly when it feels repetitive and there are a lot of repetitive thoughts, is there a particular narrative or storyline? Now, it is important to recognize also that fear does have a biological basis and that there often can be intelligence and fear. And what we're really looking for in our practice with fear is to, as it were, respect the intelligence of the fear and to um, look for the ways that fear, as it were, um, almost becomes uh, um, all-consuming. Or we can say it overrides its, its biological function. You know, where it just gets so huge that the intelligence is actually lost and, and almost uh, swamped. That that fear does have the uh, capacity to uh, almost um, uh, overreach, shall we say, or just get so extreme that we actually become afraid about everything and we lose that intelligence. Uh, there's a very nice treatment of fear, if anyone wants to look further, in the book uh, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. Some of you know. She has some very nice material. And I just wanted to read something about the biological function because it is important to, to see that fear is not simply a uh, pure delusion, of course. She says, The basic function of fear is to assure survival. Life forms as primitive as the reptile experience fear. On a purely physiological level, fear is a chain of physical reactions that occur to us in unvarying sequence. Western psychologists call this biological response to experience an affect. That's actually dis- distinguished from an emotion. Emotions start bringing in the story and the more cognitive com- components. It can unfold in an instant or endure for up to a few seconds. As the affect of fear arises, the chemistry of the body and the nervous system shifts in ways that enable several distinct responses to threatening situations. For instance, increased blood flow to the extremities of the body readies the antelope to flight. So there actually is a biological function. Tensing of the muscles prepares a a panther to fight. Freezing and remaining motionless is the protective stance of my son's, that my son's gecko takes each time a human hand reaches into the aquarium. When our cats are afraid, the fear on their back bristles, making them appear larger and more dangerous in order to discourage predators. Our standard poodle crouches and appears diminutive. Similarly, a human might try to make himself smaller, protecting the places in the body that are most vulnerable, dropping the head forward, lifting the shoulders, surrounding the back, and contracting the chest. For each animal, as long as the danger persists, the one-pointed focus on self-preservation is maintained. 
So there is a certain uh, intelligence there, and there can be even an intelligence in in the fears that don't have to do with physical survival. That I may, um, you know, I may be afraid of a public talk, of of giving. I may experience fear and anxiety in relation to a public talk because I haven't prepared enough, you know. And it actually may tell me do a little more preparation. So there can be this intelligence in fear where I may be afraid of an interaction with a person because I have fear of that person's aggression coming at me and I feel like I'm not so prepared to meet it and I feel like it might hurt me. That's, I think that can be intelligence. So where, is fear, where does fear become problematic? I think it becomes problematic when it, it becomes something that uh, goes way beyond that immediate situation. And what's interesting about humans as opposed to animals is that the fear that we have is more of an emotion than something simply instinctual or something based on what what, uh, Tara Brock was calling affect. That it actually involves memory and history and thinking and stories. And that's where that's where the picture gets more complex. That because the because we have that capacity for memory, the fear can be such that it really tends to blind us. That I can have had a difficult experience with a certain kind of person 10 years ago, and I may be afraid of similar people for the rest of my life. Or I may have certain experiences as a child uh, that tell me that I have to be careful when I show my true self and I may be afraid of showing my authentic emotions for the rest of my life until I come to California and do therapy. <laughs> and so the fear, which can be the, the fear in human beings, uh, as with, is especially constructed around the fear of future pain. And what makes that complex is that when we've had past pain, we can get so guarded against future pain that we, can sh- that we can start to shut down. And it can actually be not really connected either with reality or with the potential for um, growing past a certain kind of fear. And that's really, that's really the place where we inquire. It's helpful also to see how there are clear kinds of fears that arise in certain situations, but there's also quite a lot of fear that we carry around with us, which is kind of a low-grade anxiety or sometimes a medium-grade anxiety. And a lot of what we explore when we do meditation is we actually find out how much fear we carry around with us. And it can be sometimes quite shocking and revealing. I know for myself... Uh, when I first started to meditate in my 20s, I was really, over time, I came to see that there was a way in which I was trying to, in a sense, control experience. And that when I really looked carefully at my experience, and it took quite a bit of silence, I could see that I had a kind of generalized fear of the future as such. And that there was a way in which uh, what appeared as a kind of control was based on a sense that, oh my gosh, I better really control the future experience or it's going to be scary. 
And some of us do that. I think uh, actually some of this is way beneath consciousness until we actually look carefully at it. That we all, I think, or many of us, carry around quite a bit of fear which manifests can manifest in tendencies to be controlling either of ourselves or of other people. It can manifest as a generalized anxiety about experience. And when we actually can work with it and look at that in meditation or in other ways, we start to become aware of it and have the potential for letting that go. There also is, as I mentioned, uh, generally, many of us carry around essentially unresolved pain from the past. Cultures do this as well. Obviously, our culture carries a huge amount of unacknowledged, unresolved pain from the past, which you know we can link, for example, with phenomena like the uh, like slavery, like the near genocide of Native Americans, like you know the, all the different forms of oppression, oppression of women or oppression of gays, lesbians, and so forth. And collectively, it appears, I think, as this body of pain that almost drives behavior without even being a parent. And so there's a large amount of fear. Generalized anxiety can be in the society. It can be in ourselves. If we have a certain level of pain that can be quite beneath the surface, again, let's suppose, to give one example, this is more psychological, that I have been... um, uh, had a, a divorce. My parents divorced when I was 10. It was quite difficult and traumatic. And there was a, and my, let's say my father went away and I felt in a sense uh, abandoned uh, that I will, unless I resolve that pain at that time when I'm 10, I will carry that forward. I think this is probably familiar psychology to many of you and that that will affect my relationships with people that I will be fearful of entering into relationships because I fear that I will be abandoned, that I will tend to repeat that. And each of us have probably some version of that, that if there, that we all carry a certain amount of unresolved pain from the past. And it really uh, is actually at the basis for a good deal of our fear, a lot of which is quite unconscious. So there, in addition to the situations where fear is conscious, there's a lot of unconscious fear that we carry both individually and as a culture. It's actually a lot to contemplate when you actually look at it. Do you get a sense of that? Sometimes we can actually tune in and feel that when we're quiet. We can actually feel, my gosh, there's some general tension here, some general anxiety when I'm really quiet. How many people can relate to that? And, And it's something which we can study And with these tools of mindfulness and awareness and and really a caring heart, we can bring those to awareness where they can get transformed. That it's really the... A lot of the meditation practice is learning that we can be present with what's difficult or painful with an open heart, without a need to manipulate. And that in itself is healing. That's really the great secret of uh, a lot of meditation that we can do that, that we can be present with what's difficult and over time there is healing, whether it's personal pain or interpersonal pain or cultural pain. And yet, it's not done so much individually or in the culture. I mean, we, have, we can bless the 
practice and discipline of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, which has been around for about 100 years. Tremendous resource for working with individual pain. Meditation has been around for a few thousand years. Tremendous resource. But that's, that's one of the deeper ways of working with fear. And so ultimately, we keep on looking into our experience, and I think we find further, deeper roots of, of fear that it's somehow rooted in a lack of full understanding of who we are. And this is really where, the, where um, some of the core teachings that we find in different spiritual traditions, including that of the Buddha, come in. You, you, you may remember that in the teachings of the Buddha, the core problem is ignorance. It's ultimately an ignorance about our own nature, our own deep nature, and thinking that we have a separate self that's separate, independent, and needs to be protected. You know, and, and there was a very interesting observation or insight that I remember from about uh, 20 years ago from a friend and colleague named Stephen Batchelor, some of you know, who teaches here about every two years. And Stephen was giving a course on Buddhist psychology, and he said that it's very interesting that uh, fear is mentioned some in the teachings of the Buddha, but it actually doesn't appear very much and doesn't have a really pivotal role in, in the uh, Buddhist psychology. And he said, I think that uh, there may be some reasons for that, but he said that when he actually looks experientially and kind of existentially, he made the suggestion that fear is the emotional counterpart to ignorance. That fear is the emotional counterpart to ignorance. That, that when there is a deep not knowing of who we are that leads us to think that we're entirely separate, not so connected, and thus need to protect ourselves, fear is a natural correlate of that, isn't it? Because I have to protect myself. And as we explore our nature more deeply, as ignorance subsides, so fear subsides. And that ultimately a kind of fearlessness is possible. There's a very interesting passage that I found in the writings of a Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, with whom I have studied some. And he said that this way. He said that fear is ultimately about not really knowing ourselves deeply. And that fear is, in a way, uh, a lack of true confidence in our own capacity to be with any experience. Because you think of it, what is fear? It's basically fear is anticipation of future pain and a sense that I real, that this will be something I can't handle. Essentially, that's what fear is. There will be something here that I can't handle with confidence. And this is what, this is what uh, Sukhmi said. According to the teachings that he works with, which are called the Dzogchen teachings, true confidence comes from knowing how to be free in any thought and in any emotion. When that is the reality of our own experience, we are no longer afraid of ourselves. We generally tend to attribute our fears to an external object, saying, if such and such happens, I got scared. But this is not really being honest, he says. 
we're just pointing the finger of blame somewhere else. What we really mean when we say this is, I'm afraid that I won't be able to stand it, that I can't bear being in that situation. I don't know how to take it, or at least I think I don't know how to take it, because the fear is always future-oriented. And that's important to remember. Fear is not present-oriented, not present-centered. It basically, he says, I don't know how to take it. It basically means I'm afraid of myself. or I'm afraid of having this experience that I won't be able to handle it. That's what fear actually is. We are afraid because we are unclear about our real state, our nature, what it really is. There's a vagueness involved here. It's like we're playing a game with ourselves. We are unclear about what we are. That's the reason to be afraid. All fear springs from that. And so that's also something we can look at in our practice. How much of fear comes from a sense of self? And again, there's a, there's, a, there's a very clear place for taking care of physical survival. But he's saying that ultimately fear may come, and then we, again, we have to look at what we're afraid of, because actually our deeper fears may, result, may revolve around our sense of self more than around our physical well-being. And, and I've mentioned that study that a few times that shows that when people are asked about what they're afraid of, death is pretty far down the list. Cancer, getting cancer is pretty far down the list. Making a fool of oneself in public is at the top of the list. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's... And that suggests that the deeper fears are about the sense of self, about the sense of self-image, sort of a fear of, let's say, a fear of appearing... Uh, a fool, a a fear of failing, and ultimately, I think it's a sense that we won't get love. It may come down to that, that I will be, if I act in a certain way, I will not get love. And this is where I think the teachings would point to there being a misunderstanding. And the teachings suggest that when we go deeply into our own being, we actually find very deep, deep, resources and pools of love and understanding. We're really looking for, for love and understanding and wisdom and being held by existence. And what the teachings point to is that that is something that ultimately we can have within our very own being when we touch those depths. That there, is, that there, that there are resources of love available in our own being, that, that plumb the depths of, of the universe, really. And that that is accessible. So as a practice, we can see when does my fear involve a sense of self or a sense of self-image. And again, it becomes an ongoing practice where we can continue to look in that way and continue to work with those experiences, which I think all of us have had, I know all of us have had, where there's a sense of fullness and adequacy in our own being that we can touch. We have, we have those moments with, with people we're very close to, in nature, you know, with art or music or something like that. And the, the aim of practice is to really to touch with those experiences until they become more our habitual experience. And that more limited sense of self, which is the basis for, I think, our greatest fears, 
diminishes. So let's just sit quietly for a moment and then we can talk together. Questions, observations, reflections, spontaneous poems? <laughs> Please, yeah. I was just, it's, it's interesting. I was noticing after the sitting and when people were speaking of loved ones and, mm. and friends who were having difficult and horrible situations happening to them, I was getting very resistant. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think I started to feel my heart closing up. Yeah. Because it was breaking my heart. Yeah. So, um, and then there was also the fear. Well, that could that could happen to me. Yeah. So, um, I have been I have been reading some of Akuma Shodra. Yeah. And her tone. Yeah, and I, you know, I I find it very difficult just to be with that. Yeah, and but it kind of kicked in when I I did notice that that was happening to me yeah. doing that, and tried to turn it to to use it to open my heart. Yeah, when my heart wanted to close. Yeah, beautiful. And that yeah, really helped. yeah. But it's so hard. Yeah. And your name? Yeah. Cynthia. So, wonderful practice, Cynthia. Did everyone hear? What kind of practice did you do? I see. She was, um, at the end, she was talking about Tong Len, which is a Tibetan-based practice that some of you know, which is the deliberate taking in of difficulty or pain or suffering and breathing out relief or a kind of uh, calmness, openness. But a but wonderful Observation, because what you were doing was was practicing with fear, right on the spot there, and and noticing the tendency and noticing uh, some of the uh, reasons, you know that that it was uh, that you that there was some fear of hearing some of what was said, partly because it was um, breaking your heart, leading to strong emotions, let's say, probably physical responses also. And then on the other hand, it was uh, leading you to reflections of uh, uh, these are not, these reports, particularly about the difficulties, are not reports about a different species, right? I, this could be me, or maybe has been me, you know? And so those are your, so that study's beautiful because you're really noticing Ways that fear takes over, and then and then saying, "Here's a way to practice with it, feeling pretty balanced. I can actually notice this, and I can uh, then deliberately go into the fear." It's kind of so, kind of many of the ways of practicing evident just in that probably that thirty seconds, right? There's mindfulness, 
there's some wisdom, reflection, and there's that kind of deliberately going into the territory, even when part of you says no. So, beautiful, yeah. Please, yeah. Yeah. And but mine was not mindful. What I I mean I heard such painful stories and I decided to open I mean it wasn't conscious but I opened my eyes. Yeah. Because then I could process it better, but when I you know, I could process it less. Mm-hmm. And then when I closed my eyes I just felt so much pain. Yeah. But it you know, it's fearful of crap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's fine. Yeah, sometimes we think we should just be quiet here, but I think that's the that fear of not wanting to lose control and get tearful and cry, and then what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that okay to do here? You want to yes. want to say okay? <laughs> we've established a we've established a group norm. <laughs> but yeah, but but still, we we feel that. And we feel that. I mean, it sometimes, sometimes happens to me giving a talk. I, I tell a story, and I think even you could remember last week telling that story. I was like, I was a little bit on the edge telling the story. And, uh, but somehow, but so I think we want to really have the aim of exploring and going deeper being the main priority here. So I think that's okay. But then just to notice that and notice those differences. And the main thing is, can I stay balanced in that situation, and keep on looking is the key. Yeah, please, in the back, yeah. Yes, um, thank you for this topic. I haven't been to this particular group before. Yeah. But, um, particularly what's resonated with me is the, my experience is that fear is generally uh, wrapped around a sense of self, yeah. a separate self, the yeah. belief in a separate sense of self. Yeah. So near something to defend, something to protect, something to hold on to, which doesn't really exist. And what I heard you say is that once we start to realize more who we are, that starts to diminish. Mm-hmm. But, but ironically, or initially perhaps, um, the times that I've really opened up into my true nature or touched into that true self or no self, my true identity, mm-hmm. Um, that has actually brought up a tremendous amount of fear. Mm-hmm. And um, I've reflected on that and worked with that and talked with teachers and, and kind of looked at different teachings. But, you know, alternatively, I look at the reason for that being is that in that space of nothingness, it leaves a space to for the subconscious to let that stuff arise, one idea. Mm-hmm. Or the ego is frightened of the, yeah. the, that um, that realization that it doesn't really exist, and that brings up the fear. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure. It could bring, or or many other different things, but that has been my experience of a tremendous amount of fear that comes up in that. And I just wonder if you would comment a little bit on that in your own experience or others. Yeah. That, yeah. That you know of. Yeah. Did everyone hear the question? Everyone. So it's a great question, um, really about the um, how does the process of exploring the nature of the self, seeing the extent to which the self is a 
construction and shifting towards, let's say, a uh, greater or deeper or sense of self, if, to use that language. And um, Buddhists would sometimes use it toward, towards a sense of uh, less of a sense of self. Uh, so different language used. Uh, and what's the relationship between that and fear? And yeah, I think that uh, there, there can be aspects of the process which are gradual, in which we are noticing gradually different aspects of the self and letting go. It might, you know, something like uh, the experience of learning to uh, speak publicly. Or I can just look at my own experience of my sense of self or self-consciousness in taking a teaching role, Right? I can see that as generally having been a gradual process where I keep on noticing things and there are rough moments, you know, and I remember the first time I ever gave a really public talk in a, pub, in a setting, I was in my 20s, I think, and, and my knees were shaking. And I was really happy I was sitting behind a desk. <laughs> and over time, I think notice, keep on noticing, you know, doing a lot of work to notice self, self-image, self-consciousness, and continually going into the territory so it could get exposed. No, you know, and it, it does, in a, in a sense, even that process brings up more fear than if I just played it safe. That's clear. You know, that actually going to this territory of fear is to open oneself up to it. And that experience for me of, you know, with, there was, I don't know if there's anything hugely, hugely dramatic. Maybe, maybe there were. I'm actually... You know, when I can think back like 20 years, I can think of giving what I thought was like an awful talk and being in a funk for two months about it. So I, you know, so there, you know, a lot of stuff kind of welled up. Then there are the experiences where we uh, kind of open up to something very huge or big or like a, a sense of our own nature that's that's uh, that's quite different from our ordinary sense of self. And sometimes in knowing that, especially if that happens more abruptly or more suddenly, it doesn't mesh with the rest of our experience so well. And maybe there are a lot of parts of ourselves which, have, which still very much believe in that more narrow sense of self-image. And so it's very natural that fear is going to arise there, you know, as soon as we, as it were, uh, come down from the experience, so to speak. So that's very, very uh, natural and to be expected and and it's sometimes said in um, in it's said it's said in Zen uh, enlightenment, which could be an experience of opening to a very deep, expansive sense of self of, of awareness. In Zen, it's said that enlightenment is the not the end of the spiritual journey, but actually the beginning. Interesting, you know, meaning that it takes you know that what that a a, a major glimpse into one's essence as love or as beauty or as uh, deep awareness, whatever language we use, uh, goodness, uh, that a sense of that uh, can be sometimes a starting point that actually motivates us, but there's a lot of work to be done. And, and, uh, and it can actually, you know, I, again, I can think of my own experiences where we're gradually becoming more open, had moments where I felt really out of balance really scared, really confused. And, you know, and sometimes there was support and sometimes there wasn't, you know. But it's, it's very um, beautiful to be part of a community and, you know, have being here. I think some of those things happen. I was more 
isolated, not so much connected. But it's really here we have a community of teachers and mentors and friends. So I think there are a lot of resources for that. So that starts to get at that question. Thank you. Please, yeah. Yeah. And there are ten of them. And the fifth one is where there's a, a fight or a, a roughhousing between our natural self and the one that we've been living. And it's it comes in the middle of the ten. And it's when we begin to see maybe what we're talking about, our heart or our essence, and it doesn't fit in with the way we've presented ourselves ourselves even, but it's after that that the journey begins where you finally want to get to your ordinary self, but you have to go through all these, <coughs> these tests, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's what we may be all doing. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. It's like we have taste. Do you you remember some of you were here when I gave a series of talks on the nature of self and not-self? And you remember I gave the example as a very ordinary example just to ask, when do we feel, can we think of experiences when we have felt totally full without self-consciousness, just totally, uh, it, it could be, being with friends where we can totally let everything down. We don't have to have self-image for that, for a sense of self-consciousness. Or it could be being with nature where something kind of opened up, kind of a peak experience. And we all have had those kind of experiences. And they can be beacons. And some, one way to think about practice is to take those kind of experiences, which are really experiences of freedom, expansiveness, touching something deeper, feeling might be feeling profound love, suffusing one's experience. And those are beautiful experiences. And in a sense, we take those as reference points and we try to stabilize them as more of our ordinary being. You know, and that's one way of looking at these, these kind of discussions of self and self-image. But really looking at probably our peak experiences, we can see that a lot of them actually have to do with the dropping of that sense of self-image or self-consciousness into something that feels freer and bigger. And there's something about that which is very linked with fear not being present. And so I think that can be a kind of a clue. And so um, I have to, have to come towards an end now, but I think I would leave us with the, the notion that this is, um, I can look at my own experience, really uh, an ongoing practice. Again, it's not something that you meditate for a year or two and, okay, done that one. <laughs> you know, that it's really, it's really especially to go to the depths and find, and then stabilize that. It's a lifetime journey and it takes effort and it takes perseverance. It takes this continual mindfulness. You know, so my hope is that we can just be on the lookout for when there are moments of anxiety or fear and take those uh, rather than as moments to go back to our old conditioning, rather to be moments of practice, to moments of uh, inquiry, uh, to, to work with those as uh, very much as uh, Jack Kornfield suggests, as the bell ringing and saying, want to have some more learning? 
What do you say? <laughs> and that's really, that's, that's kind of the invitation. And it's not easy. It's not challenging. We really need each other to be like cheerleaders and supporters and buddies and talk on the telephone and compare notes and so forth. So I really um, invite us to uh, work with this. Should this occur in any experiences we have in the next few weeks, including family get-togethers. <laughs> to go back to our one of our original... Actually, it was one of the questions from our time looking at the ethical precepts before 9 o'clock. So I offer, I offer those practices. And to, you know, just to remember, we're really doing this together and we can keep on comparing notes because I think we, we learned that the most difficult thing about fear, as I mentioned, is that it isolates us and we get isolated with our own somewhat distorted story. That's the, that's the uh, greatest danger with, with fear, that we get kind of taken away, isolated, and, and somewhat stuck and caught. And it's uh, friends and community and talking about it and just remembering our time this morning that can help us to uh, have a lot of resources. So... Let's just uh, sit for 30 seconds or so, and then we'll, then we'll end. So we offer the fruit, the, what was helpful, any insights or increased energy from the morning. We offer that outward beyond the boundaries of our hall here, the land here, out into the world. Out into the world at this time of coming solstice, sacred holidays, We offer it outward for the benefit, the healing, and the increasing fearlessness of all beings. So 